All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our scripture passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, as we are looking at uh, verses, really the last bit of verse uh, 6, and then moving on into uh, verses 7 and 8. We're going to learn how to cry this morning. It says, uh, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And so uh, we need to learn what this is about, as uh, our Savior was not a uh, you know, a weak sister or some kind of a, a, a pansy or what have you. There is a place for the loud crying and tears, and this is it. And he exemplifies this for us, how he trusted himself to his father on the cross. And we'll uh, be looking at those things here shortly. In the, so in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because he of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So much doctrine to unfold from these two verses. It is just deep as anything. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to open the eyes of our understanding that he can feed us from this powerful truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, what a, what a blessing it is for us to come before you this morning. And as we glance at these verses, as we anticipate the feast that you have prepared for us, Father, we realize that we're going to be sinking our teeth into some deep, deep meat, Father. This is solid, solid food for the mature. And I pray we would have the capacity to receive it, that we would have the humility to receive it implanted, and that, Father, you would have the faith to live it out. I pray, Father, that as the Word of God comes alive, that we would see it for what it is, and we would submit to it under the authority of your Word. And I pray, Father, uh, that we would have a greater capacity to understand. It's, it's hard to even envision the, uh, the depths of his suffering, of what your Son went through, what our Savior went through. Father, the totality of his sacrifice... Um, I think all we can approach it is the fringes of his ways. We can approach by analogy. And yet we recognize that we too are sons and we too learn obedience through what we suffer. And so, Father, teach us these things as a pattern that we might live them out in a manner that's worthy of, uh, of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we ran out of time a week ago as we were dealing with the last issues from verses 5 and 6. And I don't want to reteach all that, but I do want to bring you kind of up to speed to what we're looking at. When we have here uh, in verse 5 a quotation that comes from Psalm 2, and we have in verse 6 a quotation that comes from Psalm 110. And so we've got back-to-back verses there where we're, we're grabbing a verse from Psalm 2 and we're grabbing a verse from Psalm 110 and we are putting them together in a very precise way, all right? The author of Hebrews is putting them together in a very precise way. The Holy Spirit is putting them together in a very precise way as he inspires the text of the book of Hebrews. And that becomes important for us to recognize. So, um, and this was uh, introduced with the idea of Aaron the, the Old Testament high priest and how no one takes the honor to himself. Aaron didn't make himself a priest. In fact, he kind of got the job uh, secondarily after Moses turned it down. Uh, no one takes the honor to himself, but he is called by God. And that's a pattern. And so it is with our Savior. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. This was not something that he stood and shook his fist and demanded that God let him do or make him be and so forth. Remember, the contrast here again and again and again is when you look at the five eye wills of Satan, when you look at Satan and his rebellion in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, when you're looking at Satan, the satanic rebellion is always self-promoting. It is always the pinnacle of arrogance. And whereas with our Savior, it's the opposite. It's humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so our Savior is the example of humility, and we see this here. He did not glorify Himself. 
so as to become high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Of course, that's God the Father speaking to the Son in Psalm 2. Just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews now is putting these passages together, Psalm 2 with Psalm 110, and synchronizing them, synthesizing them, correlating them, recognizing that all Scripture agrees with all Scripture, that we have the totality of the revealed Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And we are not God's fellow editors. (laughs) We do not co-edit anything that God wrote. We teach what God wrote. And that's what it comes down to. If we add to the Word of God, we're in, we're under, come, uh, come under judgment. If we take away from the Word of God, we come under judgment. And so these, these principles then become very important to us. And as such, we can see a number of things. Let me skip ahead here to where we left off. Psalm 2 is linked to Psalm 110 in a synthesis which harmonizes with Zechariah 6.13. Zechariah 6.13 is a promise of, of unity between the throne and the priesthood. That you would have Messiah who has a, a scepter, who has a crown, who has a throne. He is the king ruling on the throne, but the king also is a priest. That is a priest, and, and what Hebrews 1.10 says, after the order of Melchizedek. That there's peace between the office, the office of king and the office of priest. And, and that grabs our attention right away because Zechariah 6.13 is nonsensical. Zechariah 6.13 is problematic because uh, you know, Zechariah was told to put this, this crown on, on Joshua's head and Joshua's a high priest. He has no business with a crown. No priest has a business with a crown. See, that was the era of the Maccabees when you get into the intertestamental period of, of Jewish history. You have the Maccabees who were priests and they decided to become kings. And uh, no, the scepter belongs to Judah. Okay? So if you're going to be a biblicist in the Old Testament, Judah is the tribe of the, of the king. Judah is the tribe of the scepter. Judah is the tribe of the throne. So the throne of David and David was from Judah. There is no doubt about that. Levi is the tribe of the priesthood. And Levi is the tribe of the priesthood. And so if, if Judah is the tribe of the king and Levi is the tribe of the priest, how will you ever have uh, agreement between the office of king and the office of priest? How can one person wear both titles? Well, under the Levitical priesthood, nobody can. But the blessing is now to study the Melchizedek priesthood, which preceded the Levitical priesthood, which was greater and higher and, and uh, more significant than the Levitical priesthood. And there, when, when Yahweh says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, now we finally have a recognition of how, how do these passages, they do come together. They don't contradict, right? And this becomes a significant principle. And as I mentioned last week, if I spend the whole hour this week just teaching this point, you will be blessed for it when you walk forth today. I don't know how far we're going to get with it, but we're going to try. All things promised by God must be fulfilled even when they don't seem to and even when you think it's impossible. Okay? If God said it, it's going to happen. God promised it, He's going to make it happen. All things promised by God must be fulfilled even when they don't seem to. Even when we think there are contradictions. Right? Now you and I, we deal, we live in a world, it's a jaded world, it's a fallen world, there's skeptics, there's... Bible skeptics, there's God-haters. We're surrounded by people that don't believe the Bible to start with. And so when they find what they call a contradiction, they then uh, laugh about it and they point to it and they, they laugh at you and they laugh at me and they say, there you go, see, your Bible's stupid. And they have all these contradictions. Not so, okay? They just think so because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before the wisdom of God and we're, we're good with that. But think about so many other cases where this has been uh, applied in different ways, right? And God is always true, and God has always found faithful, and God has always made good on everything that He said, okay? So for example, if I'm reading an Old Testament and I'm looking for the coming of the Christ, I might really want to camp on a particular passage. I'm Maybe I'm in Isaiah, and I'm going to be reading about uh, Naphtali and Zebulun. I'm going to be reading about Galilee of the Gentiles, and I'm going to be all excited about Galilee of the Gentiles and the light's going to dawn and I'm going to be really jazzed about Galilee of the Gentiles as a geographic reference for the coming of the Christ. 
until I turn over to, to uh, Micah, and now I start reading about, oh, wait a minute, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one who's coming. See, And so now I've got, well, wait a minute. Galilee of the Gentiles, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Different places, right? Different places. And it gets worse because Hosea says, out of Egypt I will call my son. And now my head is spinning. And I'm going, oh, aye, aye, aye. What is this? When, when, Jesus, when, when Messiah comes, when the Mashiach arises, is it, is it from Galilee? Is it from Bethlehem? Is it from Egypt? And the answer is yes. Okay? Every single one of these prophecies has a direct, literal, real fulfillment in the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, a, it's a glorious way in which God takes all of these contradictory statements, or what appear to be contradictory statements, and He synthesizes them all. See? And so we are not um, scared of what the skeptic throws at us and says there's a contradiction in your Bible. I'm not scared of that at all. In fact, if you want to explore it, let's sit down. Let's walk through the harmony. We can harmonize those Gospels. We can, synth- we can synthesize those apparent contradictions. Okay? So we don't end up throwing our hands up in the air like King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah was told two things. He was told he would never see Babylon, and he was told that he would die in Babylon. And he just thought, well, you guys are much of liars. I don't know who to believe. You know, all you prophets, you're, you're not worth anything. But both messages were true because they gouged his eyes out before they carried him away to Babylon. So he never saw it. But he died in Babylon. Both prophecies were true. See, God is so great in what he does in, uh, in these different things. So all things promised by God must be fulfilled even when they don't seem to. And so we pay attention to this. And we'll start with John chapter 12. We start with John chapter 12, and this is a principle, like I say, this is kind of a side trip from Hebrews 5, 5, and 6, but when we have prophecies like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and they seem to be contradictory, they're not contradictory. God is going to put them together. And the author of Hebrews is doing just that when he links Psalm 2, 7 with Psalm 110, 4. But join me, if you would, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 12. And you'll you'll notice part of our Savior's ministry when He's dealing with critics and He's dealing with people that that know... (laughs) They don't know as much as they think they do. They they know a lot, but they don't know Him. And that's the biggest problem. Uh, With the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, they've got a lot of gnosis, but knowledge puffs up, love edifies. And then the issue is, I think with a lot of these scribes and, and, and hypocrites, um, they, they, they know a lot. And, uh, and, and so we see it here. So in John chapter 12, um, where do I pick up on this? Goodness, how about, well, verse um, 27, my soul has become troubled. My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, this is part of what we'll talk about next when we get into the loud crying with tears. His soul was troubled. It's not a you're not you know you're not uh, sinning when you have soul trouble, okay? Even to the point of death, that's not sin. It's reality. It's who we are in our in our humanity. So, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven. I both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying, see, and this isn't even Gethsemane. This isn't even the garden. He's not even in the garden yet. And he's already trying to find a way out of this. (laughs) Okay? And then, of course, in Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but thine be done. Anyway, there's a crowd of people who heard it, and they're saying um, that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. They didn't know. It was just a, a rumbling noise. What's that? So Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Okay? Now, ton of doctrine in there we could unpack. I'm not going to, but there's a ton of doctrine in there because the Father draws, the Son draws, and He says He draws all men. Okay? 
But now he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. If I am lifted up from the earth. He's telling the crowd about his coming crucifixion, about his coming death. But if he's lifted up from the earth, he's going to draw all men to himself. And so by this he was saying to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. Now here's the crowd. Here's their problem though. The crowd that answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. Right? We got those little verses like, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, right? We have these uh, little verses that use words like forever. And we like those verses because those verses talk about forever, okay? I like those verses. I like having forever life, eternal life. Those are great verses. So how is it that you can now say the Son of Man must be lifted up? So they've got a puzzle. You're talking about your death, but the Messiah we're looking for is here forever. You, you understand the conundrum? You understand the, the puzzle they're having? Okay. The idea that he's going to die and not stay dead, or he's going to die and rise again, the idea that, he's, that both are true, yes, he's going to die, but yes, he's going to reign forever. Okay. There's answers to these puzzles. You just have to have the, the ear to hear. You've got to have the eye to see. You've got to have the heart to understand. You've got to be able to compare Scripture to Scripture and correlate them. They're not contradictory. Every supposed contradiction can be correlated. And so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, who is this Son of Man? And so they're trying to puzzle it through. Who is the Son of Man? Is he the Messiah we're waiting for, or are there two? Are there two Messiahs? Is there a Son of Man Messiah that's going to die, and is there a Son of David Messiah that's going to reign forever? That was one of the leading thoughts of the time, by the way. They thought, well, there's, there's Messiah Ben Joseph, there's Messiah Ben David, there's different uh, legends about, well, maybe there's two Messiahs. Or maybe there's one Messiah who's going to come two times. <laughs> no, that can't be right. Well, we know that's right because we have the hindsight to look back at it. We know that's the correct answer. But back then they didn't know. Back then they didn't know. And we're told in 1 Peter that the prophets of old made careful search and inquiry, seeking to determine what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them indicated as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? I should have put that on the screen as well. It's a good passage. So, We've heard that out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How do you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so he tells them that, well, I'm here for a little while longer. All right. That's a great message. All right. So they have these puzzles, they have these conundrums, and God resolves them all. All right. So I'm going to go to Luke 24 next, but on my way to Luke, I will grab that first Peter reference I was just telling you about because I like it. All right, I think it's one ten. Yes, First Peter one ten. Really, ten, eleven, and twelve. First Peter chapter one. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Okay, they weren't sloppy. They weren't slugs. They were legitimate prophets. They could inquire of the Lord and get answers back. That's what they did. That was their job description as Old Testament prophets. Seeking to know what person or time. And all they could come up with, they had these contradictory thoughts, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, and they couldn't reconcile them unless it was a person or time reconciliation. What person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I mean, we know how this works, right? We're humans. <laughs> We know how human nature operates. You have the suffering Messiah Bible verses. You have the glorious Messiah Bible verses. Which ones preach better? You know, which ones go over well in the synagogues and in the temples? Which ones get the amens going and the more money in the, in the pot? You might expect the suffering Messiah passages get 
less attention, more neglect, less frequent references. Clearly it's more common, more popular to you know, break the bonds of Rome and let's get freedom and let's have Messiah come and we're going to have the kingdom over the Gentiles. That sounds great. Dying on the cross for my sins? What are you talking about? They want no part of that. And so seeking to know what person or time. Now notice, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you. In other words, they're given a briefing, a prophetic briefing to say there is mystery not yet unfolded and you're not the ones that are going to get it. There's a stewardship on the way. People which are not my people will be called my people and they're going to have revelation. So, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. Notice, things into which angels long to look. Isn't that beautiful? God is so smart in what He reveals and what He conceals and what He hides and what He delays to unfold in terms of mystery doctrine that He delays to unfold. Because even the adversaries aren't tipped off to what He's doing. Even the adversaries don't know everything ahead of time, even though he wrote it ahead of time. Even the, the fallen angels, are they're scratching their heads too, saying, Egypt, Bethlehem, Galilee, what's happening here? Herod murders all those baby boys in Bethlehem. Every two-year-old boy and younger, and he has them all executed. Okay? Think how sad that is, right? Did I say Happy Father's Day yet, by the way? So Herod murders all those baby boys. And yet, he doesn't know if he was successful. Satan doesn't know if he was successful. Did they kill the Christ? Did they kill the Messiah? Did they kill the virgin-born son? They don't know. Because God had actually dispatched some uh, undercover agents with some gold, silver, precious stones. They had some, some myrrh and some frankincense and they had some, you know, some escape funds that were provided last minute. And they got out of town. They got out of town. Could you do that today if you had to? You know, the money, the cash in your pocket right here, right now. Could you go live in Mexico for two years? And then come back when the coast is clear. Well, neither could Joseph or Mary. They were poor. They gave the little poor offering when they gave the bird. But they were just a couple of young kids with their first baby. And uh, But here come three wise men and here come this treasure. And with, with that kind of wealth, they did just fine for two years in, in not Mexico, in, in Egypt. <laughs> they fled to Egypt. Okay? And so Satan didn't know. Kept completely in the dark for 30 years until the River Jordan when, John, when Jesus comes to be baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and the voice from heaven says, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan goes, oh. Yeah, he's still alive. He's still alive. Okay? So, things into which angels long to look. And so this is our privilege This is a thrill and a joy. When we rightly divide the word of truth, when we compare this scripture to this scripture to this scripture, now we have to do so faithfully. We have to do so accurately. We have to do so carefully, reverently. We're not just cherry-picking Bible verses to make a pretext for a proof text, right? But we are legitimately comparing scripture with scripture according to the whole counsel of the word of God. That's what we're doing. And Jesus told us to do that, by the way, in Luke 24. So now we can go to Luke 24 and, uh, and pick up on this. Luke 24. We taught this over several weeks in the Life of Christ series on Wednesday mornings. We did over 10 years it took us to go through Life of Christ, to go through the Harmony of the Gospels on Wednesday mornings. And um, the, the, the material here in chapter 24, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus and then the the, the scaredy-cat disciples locked away in the upper room. Uh, when Jesus appeared to, to these groups, and when He taught them what He taught them, it's extraordinary. And, thankfully enough, it provides us with our hermeneutic. That's why we're the kind of church we are. That's why we have the hermeneutic we have. It's why we have 
that's why we approach the Scriptures the way that we do is because that's how He approached the Scriptures. And so you'll notice in verse 25, and we don't know who these two men are, by the way. There's one legend that says Luke was one of these two men, but whoever these two men are, uh, we're told the name of one of them, but not the other. And uh, Cleopas is the one name we're told. And they're walking along, and then so Jesus starts walking with them and says, hey, what's going on? And, and they're stunned, like, like Jesus is the only person in town that is ignorant of what's happening here. And um, so they start telling them. And so they're telling him about Jesus, which I think he was just cracking up. It had to have been. So in verse 19, um, they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> Jesus, huh? And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was. Sadly, you see their disappointment? They're disappointed. They think he's not. See, they are so devastated by the crucifixion that they, they're convinced that he's not who they thought he was. And yet he, he is. He was, he is. And he's walking with them right now and they're telling him all this and they don't even know it. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And also some women among us amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. And they came saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. But, you know, you can't believe what women tell you. In verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. And what do you know? The, it was just like the women said. But they didn't see him. Now, when you get to verses 25 and 26, we have the, the meat of this. It says, oh, He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Okay? So just jot that down. All right? there's, there's a lot of meat in this, and we taught this in the life of Christ. But slow of heart, you're just one step away from hardness of heart. Slow of heart, you are, you're headed that direction. It's like the arteries are starting to clog, but you're not quite at the, the clogged artery stage yet. But you're getting to the hardness of heart in the slowness of heart stage. Foolish, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice, not some, not a lot, all, 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 all. And that includes the passages that talk about dying and rising on the third day. Okay, All. Everything relates to everything. We put it together. Was it not necessary? Yes, it was necessary. It's a have to. For the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. I mean, seriously. If you want the glory passages to be fulfilled, why are you afraid of the suffering passages being fulfilled? You're going to start picking and choosing what verses are fulfilled and what verses aren't, then you're calling God a liar. Because the same God that promised these promised those. They all must be fulfilled. That's the, that's the, the uh, hermeneutic. The hermeneutic is totality of fulfillment. He said it would be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled. Now, if it wasn't fulfilled in first advent, what does that mean? We're still waiting for it. It is yet to be fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled in second advent because it has to be. It absolutely has to be. So, notice, beginning with Moses. In other words, let's start with Genesis, <laughs> okay? And let's go, Genesis to Malachi, right? Moses to Malachi, whatever. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So it's a comprehensive approach. It's a systematic approach. It's a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept, okay? Which means it's hard work, which means it takes thought, which means it takes effort, all right? It's not going to be the pop culture, trendy, sexy approach to doing church. Not going to have the, 
you know, the bells and whistles and all the frou-frou that goes with. But it's going to be line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so he takes the time to do that. Later that evening, he pops into the upper room while the disciples are there. And um, same thing starts happening here all over again. Uh, they're in the room. I, I get it. The, the, they're in the room. The doors are locked. And all of a sudden, he just teleports in there. And yeah, that would be frightening. So in verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thought they were seeing a spirit. But here again, when you get to verses 44 and 45, in between, he says, you know, touch me, feel me, uh, have anything to eat. And, um, but then he says in verse 44, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of it. The law the prophets, the Psalms. By the way, that's a definition of our Old Testament to this day. This is the Tanakh. This is the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, right here. So if you ever want to do some Old Testament canonicity studies, um, just go with what Jesus said. You'll do well. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. If you don't use this hermeneutic, you won't have the understanding of the Scriptures. And I love this. He opened their minds. This is the, uh, remember the title we gave this one? This is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is in Matthew 28. This is the Great Cognition. And I trademarked that, by the way. If you see that in a book somewhere, I'm collecting royalties on that. It's not the Great Commission. It's the Great Cognition. Because He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And we, this is us in the church age now, far ahead of where these guys were. We are in, the, in Christ. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon. No reason to not have an open mind, a mind that's open to the Scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. It is written. What are you going to do? Make God a liar? It is written. All things must be fulfilled. And so if it doesn't seem like it can be, if it seems like it contradicts something else, then I've got more homework to do. I've got to keep digging at it. I've got to keep studying it. I've got to keep finding the way that it doesn't contradict. Because God's not a liar. I can't pick and choose. Well, I like this verse. I don't like that verse. I can make sense out of this verse. I can't make sense out of that verse. Well, then keep working on it. Because all the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. If He put it in the Scriptures, and I've got the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and I've got a gifted pastor teacher, and I've got a flock of church-age saints, then that Bible verse is for us. We're going to learn it. We're going to figure out what it's about. And we're going to put it together with other verses. And if I think it contradicts, I'm going to stop and say, no, God's not a liar. He doesn't contradict. Let's put it together so that it doesn't contradict. Let's synthesize these. Let's correlate these because they don't conflict at all. So it is written. It is written. Don't you love that? I love that. In my mind, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect passive participle. It's like tetelestai, it is finished. <laughs> my second, okay, that's my favorite. Tetelestai is my favorite. But gegraptai is my next favorite. How about that? It is written. It is written. Our Savior was tempted three times and every single time He said, it is written. Every answer to a temptation that Jesus came up with was, it is written. Isn't that beautiful? So God, who cannot lie, puts it in writing and we have it forever. It is written. All things promised by God must be fulfilled even when they don't seem to. All right, so that's the last detail there. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a priest. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, he's a Melchizedek priest. Okay. Not a Levitical priest. Gotcha. Because if he was a Levitical priest, he wouldn't be. He's from the wrong tribe. Oh, okay, I get you. No contradiction. It fits together. 
Details are important. Now, in the days of his flesh, in the days of his flesh, what a strange expression. (laughs) In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Notice, able to save him, but choosing not to. Ooh, do you like that? We like the God who answers prayers. We like the God who answers prayers with yes answers to our prayers. But the God who answers prayers with no answers to our prayers, do we like Him too? Do we praise Him and thank Him when He answers no? The Father was able to save Him from death, but chose not to. He had to die. And that's who He's praying to. And that's who He's serving. And that's who He submits to. And that's who He worships. And that's who He loves. But in the days of His flesh. What an expression. (laughs) Okay? It's like, think back to your, uh, do you remember your college days? We could think of that as the days of your college. Or your army days. Okay? You have college days. You have army days. You have... You know, what other days do we have? We have other days, okay? Think about the days of your flesh. Well, wait a minute, <laughs> okay? Because for all of us, uh, the days of our flesh are the days of our life, that is, our, our physical life. Our whole life has been in these bodies, right? We're, we're born in these bodies, and that's when the days started, and uh, and, and that's it, okay? But For Jesus, the days of your flesh are slightly different because he preceded the days of his flesh. He was around before he was incarnate. So we want to be very clear in our terms. The days of his flesh indicates the time frame of the incarnation. Literally from the Latin, that's what incarnation means. Incarnate, in in flesh. Okay? Like carne gasada. You You got carne. You got chili con carne. You got, oh, I'm getting hungry. We've got flesh. When you go carnal, it's because you're in the flesh. So we talk about the incarnation. The incarnation is when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John 1.14. The Word became flesh. But the Word preceded becoming flesh, because in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus is the only pre-existent human ever to be pre-existent before the Bethlehem manger, right? Before the pregnant virgin. And I realize that it's trendy in a very Eastern mysticism kind of Buddhist kind of way in a very uh, New Agey kind of thing. They, want, they talk about the pre-existence of souls and the, all this satanic evil that talks about you know, whatever, that we're all eternal, we're all in, that, that humans, every human had a pre-existence before, before uh, uh, you were born. Or maybe Hinduism, you had past lives before this life, and there's another life on the way, and the, the transmigration of souls, and blah, 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 blah. None of that's biblical, all of that's satanic, okay? Souls are propagated from a father and a mother in the propagation of bodies and the propagation of souls. We want to be clear on that. But Jesus, on the other hand, is unique. Because Jesus, as God the Son, has always been. Always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Always been Jesus as God the Son. He preceded His body. That's why He says, before Abraham was, I am. And He had memories of the flood. And He spoke about Jonah. And He spoke about Adam and Eve. Because He was there. He was there. We also have a fascinating phrase here in Hebrews 10.5, a body you have prepared for me. When he comes into the world, he says, notice, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That very language demands a disembodied person who is waiting to receive his body. And the Father prepares the body. The Holy Spirit impregnates the virgin. I don't know, I think Ralph's probably right. I think the Holy Spirit provided the overshadowing 
in the sense of the privacy, while the father impregnated the virgin. That's how Pastor Ralph teaches it, and I, I tend to think the same way. In any event, but, the, but Jesus as God the Son precedes that. He's always been God the Son. Are we clear on that? All right, because we don't want to turn into, you know, Mormons or <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses or other cults and these weirdos that think that, uh, you know, that he was started as a man and then he became a god. No. He is God, always has been God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it is curious to me, it's called the days of his flesh. Also, if I may, I want to uh, separate out too the concepts related to his humanity. And just ask yourself, jot yourself a note if you've never thought of it, you've never studied this before. Just ask yourself the question, is are the days of his flesh the same as the days of his humanity? When did his humanity begin? Just ask yourself that. And then if you want more passages on it, I can get that for you because we taught this at some length, all right? Out of Proverbs chapter 8, by the way. That humanity was before the foundation of the world. Humanity was not dependent on a pregnant virgin or a Bethlehem manger that he actually had true humanity in hypostatic union, that the Father begat the humanity of Christ before his works of old, at the beginning of his ways, we're told. Okay, I'm not going to take a bunch of time this morning to walk us through that again, but if you've never been taught that before, just chew on it. Okay, And, and uh, the studies that, uh, that Lewis Roth has done lately have been powerful for us, I think, in that same regard. The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, that's hypostatic union. He is the God-man. We're, we're clear on that. He is the God-man. He is undiminished deity. When did that start? Trick question. Deity is forever. He's always been God the Son. He's always been eternal. Now, the question is on humanity. Some people might try to talk you into an idea that humanity is also eternal. He's always been the Son of God. He's always been the Son of Man. That humanity is eternal, and Scripture can't sustain that. Humanity has a genesis. Humanity has an inception. Before he was the God-man, he was God the Son. He became the God-man in hypostatic union. Okay? That's the question. So, chew on that, and if you want more, uh, the Plan of God reader has some of that, and also our Proverbs series taught that all out of Proverbs chapter 8. But it is uh, consistent with the terminology here, in the days of his flesh in the days of his flesh. That is, he had a a walk of humiliation in a mortal existence, birthed in the manger, growing up, uh, traveling, ministering, serving, doing everything that he did in his first advent incarnation. That was the days of his flesh. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And a vocabulary on this, if you want to break down distinctions, you can think of prayers uh, being uh, offerings. You can think of supplications as intercessions on behalf of others. There's different terminology. We're going to have more terminology coming up. Prayer terminology in the book of Hebrews. And thankfully enough, prayer terminology in the book of Philippians. Because it's in Philippians that we're told to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in both of our regular studies right here, right now, we've got a lot of prayer things coming up that are going to be a blessing for us. But offering up prayers and supplications. Remember, we've already talked about offering up gifts and sacrifices. Remember that? And uh, every priest is appointed, that's verse 1, to offer both gifts and and sacrifices for sins. Gifts and sacrifices for sins. Both things. Not just sacrifices for sins, but gifts first, then sacrifices for sins. Same thing here. Prayers first, then supplications. We're gonna, by the time we're done with Hebrews, we should have a mature prayer life as Melchizedek believer priests. Our prayer life should be more mature than just Gimme, 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 gimme. Should be more mature than just, Father, uh, I need, I need, I need, I need. 
I want, but I call it a need. (laughs) I need, I need, I need, I need. Supplications are great. But uh, the order here is prayers and supplications. And the things that we're offering up are gifts and sacrifices. We should be gifting God in grace in our prayer life. Gifting God in grace in our prayer life. So, um, wow. Does the slide really say, read Psalm 22 verses 1 through 31? And then when you're done reading 31 verses of Psalm 22, then we can read 36 verses in Psalm 69. Yes, the slide, the slide does say that. <laughs> okay. Are we going to do that right here, right now? I'm up for it. Okay. Let's at least highlight them. Speed reading. Psalm 22. But here's the point, okay? Not only did he do this, the author of Hebrews tells us he did this. The, the authors of the, of the Gospels recorded him doing it when he did it. Yes, he offered up prayers and supplications. In fact, he was, he was constantly praying. He prayed before he got to the cross. He prayed on the cross. He prayed the night before in the garden. He was praying the night before that. He prayed night and day. Sometimes he would put his disciples in a boat and then he'd go up on a mountain and pray and then walk across the water to catch up to him. He was constantly, constantly praying. So in the days of his flesh, which one of those pinpoint moments do we think this verse is talking about? Is it talking about Golgotha? Is it talking about Gethsemane? Is it talking about, what's it talking about? All of it. All of it for three and a half years, and probably for 30 years leading up to that. He developed a comprehensive prayer life with his Father. And we do know for a fact that on the cross he recited Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So let's, t- let's turn to Psalm 22 and let's see it. Hebrews talks about it after the fact. The Gospels talk about it at the time. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years early. One thousand years before the events took place. And you know, if I was an unbeliever and I'm looking at the Bible, I would have no answers for that. How did David write Psalm 22? A thousand years before the cross. It is so vivid. It is so accurate. It is so precise. It is so... This is Jesus on the cross right here. How did he write this? See, now of course I believe that David is a prophet and he saw visions and some of those visions he saw, this one particularly in Psalm 69, I believe he saw those visions from a first person viewpoint as if he himself was on the cross. And who's to say that the Father didn't bring him forward in time and let him see from that, that preview perspective put David in Jesus' skull for a time to watch what was happening there on the cross, to look out and see the things that he looked out and saw. So Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Now this goes on. This doesn't just stop with a complaint. In the Gospels, it stops with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the people sitting around were confused about what he was doing. They didn't even recognize the quote from Psalm 22. They thought he was calling out for Elijah, right? Because the Eli, Eli from my God, my God sounds like Elijah. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, it says in, in the Hebrew. I suspect the bulk of the people sitting there uh, were more Aramaic speakers rather than Hebrew speakers and didn't realize. I said, he's calling for Elijah. He wasn't calling for Elijah. He was cycling doctrine. What are you guys doing? <laughs> he was reciting Psalm 22. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He realized that prayers are not microwaves. That it takes time. That you don't just pray and then immediately here comes the answer. The deliverance could be a while. The groaning is now. How far is the deliverance? Well, that's God's business. His good pleasure. 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Whatever David's circumstances were appeared to have taken several days. For Jesus, of course, it was day and night on the same day. Darkness fell, and he was there for the three hours, and then day again. I have no rest. You do not answer. Yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You know the difference between a a lamentation and a grumbling? (laughs) This verse right here. This concept. You voice the complaint while you praise God for His faithfulness. So he says, yet you are holy. So this is sanctified. This is not grumbling. He's not going to be judged as a, a bitter, you know, Mara grumbler. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. I don't like my circumstances, God, but you're still on the throne. Thank you, God. I don't like this test. I don't like this cancer. I don't like this whatever, whatever. Just name the test. You don't have to like it. (laughs) But you're praying about it and you're praising God because He's still on the throne. He's in charge. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Hallelujah. In fact, what does the Scripture say? No one who trusts in God will ever be disappointed. Has he ever let anybody down? Has he ever failed a believer that was trusting in him? Not once. Not once, not ever before, and Jesus says on the cross, not today. Not today. So he says, I am a worm and not a man. (laughs) Okay? Well, that doesn't sound good. I am a worm. and I mean, who wants to be a worm? A reproach of man and despised by the people. But he willingly is doing this. See, he has to become the curse. He has to become the despised one. This fulfills scriptures. All who see me sneer at me. They wag, the, they separate with the lip. They wag the head. Well, I don't like that. Okay. But blessed are you. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake. This is what it's about. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. You know what an insult that is? They're mocking him. Commit yourself to the Lord. Are you kidding me? There's never been a believer more committed to Yahweh than Jesus Christ. And they're telling him to commit himself to the Lord. How insulting is that? You're just not devout enough. If he loved you, he would get you off that cross. Let him rescue him Because, since, if he really does, delight in him. I mean, does he love you or not? Does your father love you? Remember, Satan had already offered him all the the kingdoms and all their glory. Without the cross, all he had to do was bow down and worship Satan. That's all he had to do. And now he's taunting him. Come down, come down. If he loves you, he he will rescue you. How insidious is that? I'm starting to suspect that at this point there was some point where that that oops moment showed up again. Where, wait a minute. Satan finally started to say, this could be bad. Right? Because he starts to see he sees Jesus being lifted up. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up. And Jesus talked about the, the serpent being lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And now the serpent is starting to say, wait a minute. He's starting to put the two and two together here. He's starting to think, wait a minute. Maybe I should get him off of there. <laughs> come down, come down, get off of there, come down. And he's not coming down. He didn't come down. Praise God. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Jesus, of course, had capacity most babies don't have. 
uh, but in any respect. We're not entirely clear. You know, he laid aside his privileges. How much knowledge did he retain as an infant? Um, you know, was he, I expect he was sinless and he was good and he was, he didn't, uh, anyway, but the idea of trusting faith capacity as an infant is, uh, is extraordinary. There was some kind of grace that let him reach to the age, he had to reach an age of accountability of eating curds and honey. He had to reach to that age of accountability where he could choose good and reject evil. And the grace of God sustained him to remain sinless until he reached that toddler stage. See, in any event. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. When Abraham had Isaac strapped down on that altar, there was a ram caught in the thicket that could take Isaac's place. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, there is no substitute. He is the substitute. There is no ram in the thicket. There is no alternative. He does it or it doesn't get done. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And in all of this, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. There's those dogs again. <laughs> we were in Philippians 3.2 last hour. Beware of the dogs. Okay? Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet when David was king in Jerusalem. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. When the Persians were doing it, it was more of impaling on a stake. They tried some other piercing type judgments. But really, they pierced my hands and my feet. It was a Roman masterpiece of execution that could last for days and days at a time. And the whole point was to stretch out the agony. And here's David describing it a thousand years before it was invented. Or at least 600 years before it was invented. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. There's another one. That might seem contradictory. Well, which is it? Are they, are they divvying them up? Or are they casting lots? Both. Some of them they divided up, but that one seamless garment, they cast lots for that one. And that one was special. That one they cast lots for. So seems contradictory. Both are true. Isn't God great? And in all of this, he says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. You, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. When all of this is done, and and when's that going to be? When the Father determines. That's His good pleasure. You know, and then he anticipates, what are you going to do when all of this is over? He says, I, in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. He's already anticipating the hallelujah chorus when this whole test is complete. Here's what I'm going to do when the answer comes. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Isn't this beautiful? So, um, I really want, uh, if, if we get down to verse 24, then I've accomplished my objective here. <laughs> um, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, of the afflicted. Jesus is the despised one, man of sorrows acquainted with grief, men from whom, uh, you know, one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, who esteemed him. God didn't despise him. The Father didn't despise him. The Father didn't abhor him. Nor has he hidden his face from him for a moment. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. I love that. And that's our text in Hebrews 5. He was heard. He was heard because of his piety. 
So the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. I mean, the psalm ends in victory. We've got kingdom here in uh, the end of Psalm 22. Here's the cross. David writes this a thousand years ahead of time. Next week we'll look at Psalm 69 and then we'll move on because we've got material to look at related to um, the prayers, the answered prayers, the unanswered prayers. I don't like calling them unanswered prayers. They're answered no. They're still answered. Okay, Garth Brooks had that popular song about unanswered prayer. It was answered. The answer was no. And that's what we have to praise God for. And uh, piety. We're going to be heard for our piety as well. So we'll talk about that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for Psalm 22. I thank you for Psalm 69. I thank you for all of these powerful, powerful messianic predictions. And, uh, and our Savior knew all of these. Had them memorized, was ready to go. He knew who his betrayer was. Psalm 69, we see the, tra- the traitor. We see the Judas. And he called him friend and went to the cross. Father, I pray that we learn from these examples. I pray that we learn as well how to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray, Father, that we would fix our eyes on the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that all of these uh, doctrines, Father, would come together in our thinking for our application day by day, moment by moment. Open our eyes to see what is expected of us as we pursue our Melchizedek priesthood today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.